connecting, growing, and gaining opportunities together. Welcome to the Travel Hub Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Travel Hub Podcast. I'm Michelle Bouchard, your host for today's show. There is an emerging growth of telehealth services within travel nations right now that have been spurred by the COVID-19 pandemic. We have seen many tribal organizations change the way that they provide health services to better serve the needs of their patients. One tribe that has done this very well is Cherokee Nation. In today's episode, Mike Day and I talk with Dr. James Delcup and Tony Potts of Cherokee Nation Health to hear their story about adapting telehealth services into their overall health goals to provide safe and continued medical care for their nation. First of all, thank you guys both for agreeing to be on the podcast today and the recording. Uh, Before we really get into everything, I guess I just wanted to get a little bit of background from you, Dr. Salkup. Maybe you can go first and just give us a little bit of your background and how you landed at Cherokee Health. Uh, Yes, ma'am. So I'm Dr. James Stalkup. I am a family practice doctor. I have subspecialty board certification in clinical informatics. I've been with Cherokee Nation for 10 years. Uh, I was the medical director of a couple smaller clinics for the Cherokee Nation. And as we sort of modernized our EHR, uh, I got involved with some projects with the health IT department, really got along with the folks, really a great team that we have in Cherokee Nation. And they asked me to be chief medical informatics officer and I accepted. And so I've been CMIO now for, I want to say about a little over five years. And it's just been absolutely wonderful. We constantly have analytics and clinical improvement projects going on. It's just really challenging and really fun. And Tony's on the call today. Tony is kind of, uh, she keeps me honest. She keeps me from telling fish stories. So hopefully (laughs) I won't, I won't fib too much today. He does make his stories very entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone needs a Tony. (laughs) So, Tony, thank you for being on the call today. Also, would you want to give our listeners a little bit of background on yourself and your work with Cherokee Health? Sure. I'm Tony Potts, and I'm the Director of Health Applications for Cherokee Nation Health. I originally started out with Indian Health Service and worked at our Hastings Hospital back in 1996. So this is actually my 25th year of working with IHS and then transitioning into Cherokee Nation. So it's really exciting time right now. I've seen it grow a lot. We've moved from, you know, paper records uh, through EHR and now working with telehealth. So it's just really been great to see the transitions that have occurred. And it's been a real honor to work with all of the staff that we've had and just knowing what we can offer to our patients here is very rewarding. And, you know, working with Dr. Stockup, like I just said, he's definitely very entertaining, such an asset to Cherokee Nation for all of his innovation that he offers. So I really think he's great just to put that on the recording. <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't pay me to say it either. <laughs> That's the nicest thing. That's the nicest thing Tony has ever said to me in the history of the world right there. Now, for our listeners who might not have an idea of where exactly you're located, can you kind of give us an idea of your, uh, maybe the tribe and even the locations of some of your health facilities? So Cherokee Nation is the largest by membership tribe in the nation. We have a reservation that covers about 10,000 square miles, 14 counties in Oklahoma. We have nine outpatient centers and one hospital. We have the now 480,000 square feet. We have the largest outpatient tribal health facility, our new outpatient health center, which is a joint venture and just went live here within the past years. 
absolutely wonderful uh, facility. Uh, we offer comprehensive care from cradle to grave. Actually, we offer a lot of prenatal and fertility counseling. So I'm going to start saying we offer from like moment of inspiration to the grave. Maybe I don't know how to include that, but we offer very comprehensive services. We have a large pharmacy division. We have a robotic outpatient pharmacy uh, centralized refill center to make sure that folks get prescriptions very rapidly. We have all disciplines of primary care. We have specialty care like orthopedics, ENT, uh, psychiatry. We have a large behavioral health division. We have substance abuse treatment and counseling uh, at virtually every site. And the way we have our health system built is there is a physical location every 30 minutes as you go across the tribal jurisdictional service area. So people are usually close to one, if not more, of our outpatient health centers. Of course, you know, my goal has always been that you don't have to pump gasoline into a vehicle and start it and drive somewhere to get services. So with our virtual platforms now, we are branching out to deliver a lot of care to the patient's home which is sort of our goal in health IT. And it has gotten quite a bit of support from our uh, tribal leadership. That's great. Now, about how many people per year do you see in your actual facilities? So in our actual facilities, in a given year, we engage in care somewhere around 200,000 individuals. Now, this changes from year to year, obviously. Sometimes kids may not come in for 14 months, and so they kind of move off of that statistic. But we, uh, I'm trying to think of the last time we ran it. I believe it was around 180,000, but it's usually right around 200,000 individual uh, engagements with uh, consumers in a year. Now that's 200,000 individuals. As far as visits, we typically do somewhere around a million visits a year. Okay. And now I'm assuming that, like you said, you're trying to to switch into or to incorporate more of in-home visits. Now, will that change that number or will that just increase the number of people that you're actually seeing to give care to? Well, so this is kind of interesting enough, Michelle, when you embark on a telemedicine project, you're not simply replacing visits that would typically be in person, right? Now you're offering a new service and it's a service that's more desirable for small things. One of my favorite things is question and answer. I love the idea of an asynchronous question and answer, almost like a Vine or a TikTok or a Snapchat where a patient can ask individual questions. Now, these are questions that may not be enough to prompt a patient to overcome the barrier of going to the clinic, scheduling an appointment, et cetera, but it still adds value to the patient. So there is a very big sort of consumer-focused aspect of telemedicine in which you can actually expand your services into an arena that really benefits the patient but wasn't practical until now. There are a whole lot of people who sit and wait in emergency rooms and urgent cares around the country who literally have a brief question. And telemedicine is your way that you can sort of address this. So we do love replacing in-person care as much as we can with this rich sort of communication and telemedicine. But you also are able to expand your services. And so I think that, you know, in the end, you're going to end up capturing a lot more visits that you would not have captured in sort of a traditional model. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are definitely seeing with the tribes that we're talking to on a daily basis, the growth of telehealth services within tribal nations since this COVID pandemic hit. It's interesting to see how it may have been on the back burner six months ago, and now it's at the forefront. It's definitely changed, I feel like, the way that people are looking at this. 
So you've briefly mentioned a few ways that the pandemic has changed your facility as you're moving more towards a telehealth services care. When did you find that that happened? Were you working that way before the pandemic hit or was it a catalyst to move it faster? So we provided full spectrum behavioral health services, including psychiatry via telemedicine prior to this. And we had actually utilized telemedicine previously. So I wouldn't say that it was new. That being said, It certainly expanded. There was a time where we were rolling out one service line a week, sometimes maybe two service lines a week uh, with telemedicine, which is something that we would not have done previously. We wouldn't have moved that fast. We did change platforms in response to the pandemic which is something that we probably wouldn't have pursued. But the demand was so high to frankly replace traditional visits with telemedicine visits for staff and patient safety that I believe the last time I checked was a week ago and eight of the previous nine weeks had seen more than half of our total health system visits be conducted via telemedicine. So we did replace quite a bit of our visits. Were your facilities closed down during the pandemic? Are they open now? What did you guys do during that time? Well, so we kind of had an interesting sort of approach to it, and it'll probably take two minutes for me to explain it. But if you'd be interested in hearing that, we did not absolutely shut facilities down. We did not necessarily close our doors. We figure that the clinicians are the best skilled people that we have in the field to determine what appointments are of adequate gravity, of adequate acuity that they need to be done in person. For example, there are visits that are not necessarily amenable to telemedicine, but we had a process by which we determined what those visits were. So in the start of the pandemic, with the health IT team, I came up with this idea and I said, we need to treat every patient like a source of radiation. And what I mean by that is when you have a source of radiation, there are several ways that you address it. Number one is you don't get close to it. Uh, Secondly, if you do have to get close to it, you wear the proper protective equipment. And third, if you do have to get close to it, you minimize your time that you are adjacent to it. So our goal was to develop workflows for every service line that involved a minimum amount of patient contact for patients that had to be in the building. So first off is delivering telemedicine to the patient at home, right? That's zero contact. Secondly, we did have patients coming on site. So how do we deal with the patients on site? So what we did was we had a nurse position, which we called the shadow chaperone nurse. This nurse would have PPE. This nurse would engage with the patient, grab the patient, take them back to a room, put the blood pressure cuff on, start the vital signs monitor and open a channel to another nurse. Then the chaperone nurse would walk out of the room. So the total chaperone nurse time within six feet of the patient was about two minutes. Now the nurse on the open channel on the computer in front of the patient would then have the patient call out the vital signs, record the vital signs and perform the nursing intake, all the nursing screening questions, medication reconciliation, etc. That nurse would then hand off that video channel to a provider and the provider would then conduct the visit. Now, there is a term that we use called escalation. And I think this is one of the more interesting things that we did. So whether a patient was at home or whether a patient was in clinic, the provider performing the telemedicine visit always had the opportunity to escalate that patient to in-person care. So we afforded every provider doing a telemedicine visit a way out, a way to say, look, this is more complicated than what I can do. And so here's what this looked like at home. If the patient was at home getting a telemedicine visit and the provider said, look, you're going to have to be seen on site. This may be serious. The provider would then do a handoff by opening a video audio channel to the escalation provider at clinic and say, hey, I have a patient who's coming in. They would provide the whole history. Once the patient got to the clinic, 
the escalation provider just went in, performed an exam, and addended the note of the original provider. So this is a way that we could minimize that provider time. So if the patient was in clinic and they needed escalation, the remote provider, the provider who was not in the room with the patient, who was seeing the patient in our clinic via telemedicine, would then hand that off to the escalation provider. So the escalation provider's job was to be on site, be ready and able to throw on PPE and go in and perform a physical exam and get disposition on the patient. We found that less than 5% of our patients got escalated, but this allowed a huge incentive for adoption of telemedicine. It is very difficult to take providers who may not have much interest in telemedicine say this is something that you have to use without giving them a way out. And so when I've explained this previously, I explained it like a modal or an inline alert. Okay, so an alert pops up on my screen uh, and it says you can't order this. Now that alert should give me an option to place the correct order, right? It shouldn't just stop me dead in my tracks. It should allow me a way around. And so we need to afford our providers the option to say, look, this isn't appropriate for telemedicine. This person needs an exam. So one case example that I frequently use is there is a young woman in the clinic with abdominal pain. This young woman has a virtual visit. A provider who is stationed at home orders x-rays, lab work, takes a complete and thorough history. Then at the last moment, escalation provider walks in, performs a physical exam on the patient and then treats the patient appropriately. Whether that is transfer to an area for surgery or whether that is send out for a CAT scan or an MRI, whatever the, the pathway is, that in-person provider then gets to do that. So that was, I think, my opinion, probably one of the single biggest sort of drivers of adoption because doctors won't refuse something if you give them a way to use clinical judgment. This is Mike, and I like that entire way that you went through that a lot. That makes a lot of sense to me in telehealth. So you're able to close out nearly 95% of these sessions with a patient via telehealth. But for the 5% where people really do need to come in and see a physician or a doctor, whether it's lab work or whatever, you're able to catch those and escalate them. And it serves almost like a triage for those people. But the patient gets the comfort that whatever was happening, that they didn't know what it was, that they understand it now because they were at least able to talk to a provider. That's a great way of running this program. Yes, sir. I think that this is one of the better things that we did. And I give a lot of credit. You know, this is not some sort of ingenuity on my part. This is Tony and her team working very diligently in Visio, making the workflow processes with all the little boxes and arrows and, and role responsibilities and color coding it and, you know, having an, a way that we can push it out. We actually performed voluntary training for our providers. So we would onboard a service line, but we had virtual care training every single day at noon and a provider could join 10 sessions or one session or three sessions or whatever they felt was appropriate. I think that that drove adoption. I think those were the two things, escalation provider and, and having this training that was so widely attended over. And we had providers who you know, attended over and over just to make sure that they had it down pat before they started. This was all kind of key. And I, I wish I could take credit for all of it, but it wasn't me. A lot of it was Tony and, and her folks. That's great info. And speaking of Tony, maybe I've got a question for you, Tony, as well. And, and maybe it's a two-part question. So we are really trying to help all of the organizations that are also, you know, they're facing similar challenges. And we kind of like to hear 
what it is you're using for uh, your telehealth platforms. And then maybe uh, Dr. Stalkup and, and you together could maybe tell me what happens, you know, anytime you put a new technology in front of people, even people that maybe you're training in your own facilities, and then in patients and asking them to use it, there's always an interesting thing that occurs there. So maybe we talk about the technology first, and then really, you know, maybe a few of the things that uh, you encountered as you put this in place. Sure. So we went with Skype for business. We had Microsoft and we used our Skype. And those noon sessions that Dr. Stockett mentioned were very important because we had had all of that installed for quite some time. And honestly, even within health IT, I'm not sure that we really took advantage of the application. You know, we still met in person for most everything that we worked on together. As a team, we didn't use Skype that much to message people. Just occasionally, we didn't use it to conference in. We honestly, we just didn't use it probably like we could have been. And so this forced us, as well as the staff, the providers, patient access team, nursing, it forced us all to dive into using that type of platform. So it was a little challenging other than a crisis tends to make you not think about what you can't do, I think. And Dr. Stockup, you might agree with that as well. I know a lot of times we were trying to work with providers to throw out new technology and do different things. And it wasn't always a welcome adventure (laughs) by any means. But there's something about a crisis and a pandemic that you just decide you can't really not do something. Maybe that's what it was. But definitely we had to get past a learning curve very, very quickly. And those noontime training sessions helped. You all mentioned the workflows. Those were painful, to say the least, to put together. But, you know, we tried to make sure we had workflow very clearly identified from the start of the process to the end of it, meaning patient access was involved. Nursing was involved. We had clinic chaperones that were involved. A lot of times our clinic chaperones were volunteers. They were folks that maybe weren't always necessarily very involved in the clinical processes, but they became involved. And then the providers, of course. So we really had to involve a lot of different people. So the workflows were very, very helpful. Also, because we had a couple of different processes, meaning when the patient was in the clinic, we had a virtual process that helped with that. And then we had the totally virtual where the patient was at home and the provider and the staff were at home or at a different location. So we tried to be helpful in identifying all of those things. Also, what helped was just developing a script for people. So your patient access team, you know, they were used to calling a patient and scheduling appointments. And it amounted to nothing more than, you know, hey, this is so-and-so from the Cherokee Nation Outpatient Health Center, and we're needing to schedule your appointment. And, you know, the patient would say, okay, yeah, Tuesday looks fine. One is great. Okay, I'll see you there. You know, it wasn't that big of a deal. Well, when you're trying to also convert your patients to a new process, we had to get a little bit clever with that. And when we first started, we offered them telehealth visits and we'd say, you know, we have the option, you can do a phone call or you can do a video visit. Well, we had a fair number that, you know, phone visit sounds very easy. You just pick up your phone and you're talking to your doctor. And so we had a lot of patients that just immediately opted for the phone call because I think it was an easy method. And this was all new to them, even talking 
talking on the phone with a provider because a lot of them hadn't done that before. When we realized that we ended up having a few more phone type visits being requested rather than the full on virtual visit where the provider could actually see the patient through the video, which Dr. Stockup tells me it provides a much better communication with the patient. And I agree. I was actually a patient with my provider here at Cherokee Nation and it did. It offered a great, when I can see my doctor, they can see me. That communication just is so much better than just the voice. So what we did, we kind of changed up our scripts for patient access and found a way to almost forcefully and kindly say to our patients, we're doing video visits and we're going to sign you up (laughs) and kind of made them work for it. If they really didn't want to do that, then they had to kind of almost request a phone call. And we found that to be more successful. So just by working on our scripts and, and helping our patient access team present that message, we had more success with that. I like that a lot. I'm going to add right in here. I think that's important. So you found greater success when you made telehealth the first choice mm-hmm. and anything else the secondary choice. Exactly. That's a really important point. And that, yeah. that was sort of a turning point. I think so. Well, this is a good point to talk about lessons learned. And we have a very big lesson that we learned, and I'd like to share it. And I'm not sharing it to show favoritism to any platform. I'm sharing it just as a reality of human-computer interaction and how people engage with apps. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's a very important piece. And I'm certain that everyone across the country who is doing Doing this runs into this because it is exactly that human and technology. You put them together, there's always something interesting. So it's, it's very good to poll your providers, right? So you have your SurveyMonkey or whatever polling platform that you use, and you need to poll your providers on how they think telemedicine is going. What's their experience, etc. So we chose to use the Zoom platform for our telemedicine. The Zoom platform will run on a cell phone. It requires the patient to download an app. Now, for tribal health systems that may be listening to this, it is crucial that you deliver your telemedicine to cell phone devices. And the reason for that is rural families and minority families have the absolute highest prevalence of having cell phone as their only source of internet. So you do not want to cut yourself out of providing care to those areas that don't have reliable broadband. So it's very important that whatever app you use is going to deliver via cell phone. The issue that we have is downloading an app is too much to ask. It is too much to ask a patient to download an app. And when that patient joins that Zoom meeting with the provider, it is the first time they've ever been in a Zoom meeting. Now your provider is doing tech support. I will say that there are products that have realized this. I really like Doximity. I like the way that you, and I have no financial affiliation with Doximity. I have nothing to do with it. I like the way that you text a link to your patient and the patient clicks the link. I think that to have a successful audio video to cell phone application, it has to be appless. It cannot require the patient to download an app as a condition of participation. When you have something that requires the patient to download the app, your scheduling staff now, because Um, Tony, I 
don't know the way you would say it. Your, your scheduling staff become some sort of app store navigators and all kinds of things happen. Like people have a, you know, elders have a smartphone bought by their adult children and they don't know what an Apple ID is to get into the store to download it. I mean, there are a variety of things that happen. Uh, the usability when the patient is in that first call, we found that our providers, now this is our provider's estimate, but in, in this case, in this one example, the provider estimate is more important than the reality, right? The provider's estimate is the reality in which the provider lives in. Another way to say that is this is subjectivist epistemology and not objectivist epistemology, but the providers feel that 40% of Zoom visits that start out as a Zoom visit then fail over to the provider having to call the patient on the phone. So that is a terrible statistic. That means that around half of the patients that have already been through this whole process of talking to the scheduler, getting the appointment made, the scheduler then makes the Outlook reminder and we have a whole you know sort of workflow by which we do this. After all of that labor has been put in, to have the providers feel like that many fail over to a phone call is unacceptable in my mind. I think that in the future, these platforms aren't going to require an app download. I think they will become more and more applicable or, you know, there's, there's a variety of terms for that. None of them are entirely correct. But I think that being able to send that link, I think that Doximity has an interesting model in which they market to physicians. Uh, I have some sort of criticisms about Doximity. I have some criticism about Doxy.me and some of the other platforms that are being used. But using a platform that is based on the patient downloading an app is fundamentally flawed, uh, in my opinion. Now, we have delivered a great, great volume of audio, video, telemedicine visit to cell phones. But as far as lessons learned, I think that that is one that health systems need to look very, very carefully at. That's a fantastic point. I would agree with that. You know, I had in my own uh, experience, I've done a telehealth session once and I did at that point have to download something, but being in technology, I was able to get through this. I have a relative who is elderly and it was the exact opposite. We actually had to help him to get set up, establish the session, and then keep that running on his own. It would have been an impossibility. Maybe I have a question there. Have you found that you end up, when you're doing these sessions, having a relative helping out some people who are either elderly or not as familiar with the technology, a part of those sessions, at least in the first time or two that it's done to make sure that it's working? Or is your doctor or provider usually stuck being the tech? I would say that we have it both ways. So it's typically a spouse. I don't know how much healthcare I would uh, distribute to adult males if it weren't for spouses. It seems like the spouses are very much involved in this. And so either the spouse is on camera actually helping it or the significant other to the male patient is um, shouting directions like an angry stage mother as we're trying to conduct the visit. We do see with elders, a lot of times there are adult children in the picture helping them out and sort of guiding them through it. And that sort of speaks to the difficulty uh, that we have. I know my parents, I got great folks. I try to talk to them all the time and I had the brilliant idea that we would do Zoom meetings. And um, let me tell you, 
it was challenging. It was a whole lot of tech support and trying to get, and it's not, it's not their fault. You know, it's not, it's not the elders fault that the solution is sort of difficult to navigate. So this is something that I think the way it's going to look two years from now is completely different than the way it looks now. We are planning on internally developing an app to use that is going to have the text to meet feature. That's the future for us is we're going to develop our own. But I think that health systems have to look at that very carefully to the point that, you know, there are a lot of health systems that may have really had a lot of success with telemedicine, not based on the knowledge or experience or the attention to workflows or detail, but just when they made their selection, they selected an app that had the text to meet feature. I think that that is a sort of a force multiplier in the telemedicine world. Well, I know we're running up on time here and I've got one last question and then Michelle, I'll let you wrap this up, but appreciate your time here today. Very informative. If right now you both were moved to an organization that does not have a telehealth program, they're asked to stand it up and this pandemic was just starting and the only way to give service was through telehealth for a period of time or the majority of the way to do this. What would be your advice to that organization or what would you do? Maybe a, a two or three steps that you think are critical to making sure this works. If you could share that with us, I think that'd be great. Okay. So my advice would be, I think that there's three points that I would say if I land in an organization that doesn't have an active telemedicine program. The three things that I would say, and are are we assuming that there's a pandemic going on? Yes. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to order a pallet of Kindles and then I'm going to get these Kindles. I'm going to put them all in the network. I'm going to put Zoom on all of them. I'm going to get stands for them and every consumer facing position in the clinic, I'm going to replace with the Kindle and I'm going to send those people home. So now when the patient walks up to the scheduling clerk, it is actually a Kindle. I'm going to have a box on the floor and there are going to be color coded forms that if we need a consent to treat the person on the other end of the Kindle will say, hey, grab the purple form and sign your name on it and stick it in the box. And then we're going to quarantine those documents. So I'm going to virtualize it as many consumer facing positions as I can right out of the bat with uh, Kindle Fire because it has a great speaker that a person can hear at 40% volume and it runs Zoom and that Zoom channel can stay open all day. So that's the first thing. Second thing is I am going to structure my health system such that we can deliver telehealth into the room. I think that it's critical that the rooms be equipped that we can deliver telehealth into them because what we've seen in our COVID clinic and what we've seen in our outline clinics is that really minimizes staff exposure. Just because the patient's on site doesn't mean that you have to physically be engaged in the patient's presence. And the patients understand this. You know, when you explain to the patient, look, the healthcare providers can give the patients COVID just like the patients can give it to the healthcare providers. They are very amenable to that. So first point is pallet of Kindles, running Zoom or whatever. And on those, it doesn't matter if it's appless or text link because you just keep the link open all day. Second is going to be delivering it to the room. So that means you've got to find some kind of black market dealer that will sell you webcams when there's a shortage nationwide, right? And then the third point is going to be whatever the cheapest appless telemedicine solution you can find is, and you spend a day and you have everybody download it and just run around the building doing visits with each other to make sure the video and audio is adequate. That's my first 10 days on the job. Those are the three things I'm approaching. And interestingly enough, if you have a pallet of Kindles, you can also stick those in the exam room. So even if you can't get webcams, the Kindle already 
has the webcam on it. So I think that these devices, and we've looked at several, we looked at some little Android devices and things like that, but I think that there's a lot of these sort of consumer grade, cheap $50 devices that they're media devices, they're four media playbacks. They have just wonderful speakers on them. Just very, very good audio quality. So that, those are my three things. So my three things based on his three things, <laughs> which it's so crazy because this is basically what we did for the most, maybe minus the Kindles. Workflow, you've got to have a good workflow and you've got to figure out what it is. So all of these things in place that he wants here, I would be wanting to develop a workflow to make all those three things work. Second thing is training. Despite the urgency, despite it being a crisis, despite needing to get this out so quickly, you still have to train everyone involved. You have to train your end users, your providers, your nurses, patient access, and you've got to find a way to basically train your patients, whether that means just making them aware that this is happening or showing them how to use this appless, <laughs> how to get a text message, whatever it may be. Training is very important. And then the third one, which kind of goes along with training, is just awareness. Everyone in the clinic in that setting needs to be aware that this is out there. So as patients just wander up to whoever it is in the clinic, the message needs to be that, hey, we offer telehealth. You know, maybe you don't need to be here in the clinic exposing yourself today. Maybe you could have done a telehealth visit. So I think awareness, workflow, training and awareness. You know, this is when you need, like in an organization, you need a Tony Potts. And here's why is because she will get a project plan. If we were all going to meet up for a softball game, Tony would produce a project plan for it with gateways and deliverables. <laughs> and here's the workflow. And here's the, you know, it's like, you know, hey, Tony, I'm going to order a pizza. Okay, here's the flow chart of how you order a pizza. I mean, it's just, you know, she, she's very good at those <laughs> workflows. Here's the thing, though. I've done it without project management and without workflows, and it doesn't no, work. you end up with everybody doing it <laughs> it's different. It's just not ever, <laughs> it's not very successful. <laughs> so, yes, it's kind of, a, it's the lesson learned in my 25 years is a good project plan is very valuable. <laughs> that was great information. I couldn't agree more. Being in the technology biz for 30 plus years, the best technology is going to fail if you do not. Uh, have a great project plan and really get everybody involved in using it and understanding the benefits. And it sounds like you've done exactly that, Cherokee Nation. So really appreciate the time, Michelle. Um, what what did we miss here? What else do we need to cover? Um, I just have one last question for you guys regarding data security. When you're starting this telehealth services, what have you seen? What are you using to secure data? You know, the platforms that you talked about using Zoom and, and whatnot, you've seen a lot of things in the news about them being hacked and whatnot. Have you done anything differently to secure Let's talk about this real quick, because I think that we can kind of be critical of products without taking too much of a subjective stand on them. So Zoom has some issues when it's used for large meetings. When we use Zoom for telemedicine, that platform has a virtual waiting room. So our patients are signing into a waiting room and it is unreasonable to think that a doctor would not know if someone surreptitiously joined that two person meeting. Right. So it, it's provider to patient. So we have had 
no concerns with security, with people spoofing IDs and joining other meetings. Now, as far as a platform for, you know, big educational forums and things like that, it's my understanding that there are some challenges with that. I have been on a lot of IHS Zoom meetings that have a lot of, that's about the only time I've done big meetings with it. I've been fortunate to be able to present at some of the Echo Zooms. I haven't seen any problems with it being used like that, but for patient care, I don't think that Zoom is concerning. Of course, we always use two patient identifiers. We always adhere to our internal Cherokee Nation policies on how we verify identity and make sure that we minimize the any sort of risk of that. So, Tony, do you want to speak more to, to things we do to make sure that we protect patients? Yeah, we just had specific options, you know, like we made sure that, oh, what do we call it? Put patients in a waiting room, you know, the virtual waiting room. There were some options like that, that we just made sure that during the training, we made sure that providers and staff involved in that were selecting the appropriate options so that they knew who was actually in the meeting area and they had to let people in. So I think that's a big piece of just making sure everything was secure. Hey, Mike, I had a... uh I had an original idea. So I only had one original idea in my life. And so every time I'm on a podcast, I try to say it. It's real quick. So I kind of went into this at the 2015 Weedy keynote. This is my original idea. It's the only one I ever had. So I think that the thing that is going to be most important in broad telemedicine adoption nationwide is relates to the concept of self, the concept of a patient having the choice to represent self. So right now, telemedicine is looked at as different. It pays different. The codes submitted are different. It has different legal requirements and things like that. But if you go back, you know, I don't know about y'all, I'm kind of a student of philosophy. So Aristotle had this concept of self, right? Like you cannot remove from the knife the ability to cut because then it would no longer be a knife. And in virtually every regard, we respect a patient's concept of self, just like we respect each other's. So Tony is representing herself electronically. I'm representing myself electronically over this podcast platform, but you acknowledge that it's us and you treat us with the same respect and as you would if we were there in person. And we do the same thing with patients, right? Patient calls in and says, hey, I need to check on a contract health referral. We don't say, well, we're going to treat you differently because you're choosing to use the phone. And so I think that there is an ethical principle which will forever change the face of telemedicine if we adopt it. And that is the patient's choice in how to represent self is an act of autonomy. So any regulation that reduces, inhibits, alters, infringes on the patient's ability to represent self in the way he or she chooses violates the patient's autonomy. And this is a big point of debate, right? So the patient should get to choose how he or she intersects with the health system, how they represent self. Do they want to represent it audio? Do they want to represent video audio? Do they want to come into the clinic? And we should respect that as long as it's not something that harms the patient. And I got into a pretty hefty debate on this a while back, and I brought up surgical consent. One argument is, well, health systems may not have the equipment to do a telemedicine visit. So why would they have to respect that concept of self? How can you call that patient autonomy? And my argument is you have to obtain surgical consent before you operate on a patient. It is considered unethical to operate without obtaining consent. And your argument cannot be, well, we didn't have a pen and paper. 
sure, we've been operating on people without consent, but we didn't have a pen and paper available. So I think that at some point, the burden is going to fall on the health system to respect the way the patient chooses to engage. Although right now, that doesn't really exist. That sort of concept of a patient's choice of electronic platform as representing a function of the patient's autonomy, you know, it doesn't really exist anywhere. So that's something I'm really excited about, about the ethical implications of that. And that's my idea. I actually, I like that concept. And I think that's truthful. If it was available everywhere and everyone understood it to be available, I think you'd see a lot more use of it. As I said, when I did this a couple of times already, uh, it's been very successful. It was quick, <laughs> painless, and uh, less expensive, quite frankly, from a billing standpoint for me to do it in that fashion. So I think you're right and really appreciate all of the input from both you, Dr. Stalkup, and Tony today. I think that it's a great conversation. I think a lot of people are going to enjoy listening to this, and I think it will really be a great part of our industry insights where we're talking about telehealth. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you both for your time and sharing your story. It's incredible. I agree with Mike. I think people are really going to be in tune to this and listening to it and see what they can take from your words and bring back to their tribe uh, to make their services better. Yeah, this is a really fun conversation. We like talking with folks outside our system and and hearing what they do. And then I I end up seething for the next day. I'm like, oh, we should have done it like them. So hopefully there's somebody out there saying, oh, that sounds cool the way they did that. Thank you so much for for reaching out and um, we appreciate the time and and thank you, Dr. Stockup, for telling our story. I knew you'd do great. (laughs) (laughs) You guys have a great day today. Thanks, everybody. A special thanks to Dr. Stockup and Tony for their time and for sharing Cherokee Nation's telehealth story. You can visit the Cherokee Nation Health website at health.cherokee.org. If you have a story you would like to share, let us know. I can be reached at michelleb at tribalhub.com. Of course, you can always connect with us here by searching Tribal Hub on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Be sure to subscribe to our Tribal Hub podcast wherever you listen to never miss an episode. Have a great day, guys.